the galaxy burns. The heretic falls. And the emperor protects. Welcome, Imperial citizens, to the Emperor Protects. I am here hanging out with my good friend Dan. How you doing, buddy? Doing great, my friend. How are you? I am well. It has been—it's been a crazy summer. That's okay for for everyone involved, but we're back at it. And uh, today we are covering truly one of my favorite books. Uh, one of the ones that made me just really, really fall in love with the Horus Heresy because of the characters involved. And that is the first Heretic. And um, this one was actually written by ADB, Aaron Dembski-Bowden, a very prolific uh, Games Workshop author. And while I'm queuing up our, our notes and stuff like that for the, the show entry, are you a fan of Aaron Dembski-Bowden? Give me your thoughts. Very, very much so. I, this book just hooked me on him. Uh, the way he writes, the style, the fact that he does a lot of time shifting yep. during the story. I just love that because... Uh, it it makes you kind of retrospective as you're reading forward, you know, story forward. And, yes. And I love the way – and he does that in all his books. Mm-hmm. And I also love the way that he does character development. And now a lot of the good authors do that, uh, but he's one of the best for sure. I agree. I, I think his particular strong point for me is um, – his ability to edit out words, which doesn't sound like the strength of an author, but it absolutely yes. is. Uh, my wife's actually a full-time author, and it's it's, it's a skill. Because um, I don't know if you know this, Dan. He actually wrote the short stories that are in the Slaves to Darkness battle well, tome. And well, uh, as far as I know, like that's like the bulk of the fantasy work that he's done. Sorry, I just dropped my phone. <laughs> I didn't know that. I was um, not- Yeah, and, and they're incredible because in a single page they give you – you know, uh, not necessarily like a detailed story with character progression, but a vibe that uh, mm-hmm. no other battle tome I think delivers on. So I, I've always loved it. Um, so today, obviously, we're talking about first heretic. This is going to have a lot to do with the word bearers as well as the uh, the custodes, the emperor's right hand people, yep. and um, our books and sources. That's usually the segment here. Again, just like before, when we get into broader topics, we'll bring up a list of sources, but we're covering a specific novel. So, first heretic, Aaron Dembski-Bowden. And, um, yeah, I, there's so much to unpack here. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, You know, this is a story about, I, I think this really, for the first time, gives people a chance to see a very dark side of the Emperor. Yes. And I think that's really, really important. If you're going to look at the overall story that's woven through the heresy and into 40k because he literally shames a legion here and if this is you know i'm going to talk about it you know a little bit later but he's just an idiot <laughs> like not only does he shame a legion but he plants the seeds of a horrible feud between two powerful groups of space marines yep. uh you know and he forces he really forces the word bearers to go off on something we're going to talk about called the pilgrimage and really discover. I mean, this is the full blown discovery for, I think for readers as well as for uh, the characters, the world of the chaos gods and demons. Yeah. We just see it full blown, you know what I mean? The heresy is birthed in this book. Yes. Uh, there yes, is no yes. question. I, um, I definitely look at the first three books that we talked about as the how of the start mm-hmm. of the heresy. Like, 
you know, this very cunning maneuver by um, Horus to have, you know, loyalists spread abroad and then annihilate basically two to three legions. I mean, salamanders and iron hands, like, never never fully recover to legion strength. Neither did the Raven Guard. And, Raven Guard, and, yes. that was. The there's one. an interesting, speaking of which, there's an interesting short story about what's going on back on... Um, uh, back on their home planet, yep. and that there's actually a human, uh, you know, like a regular uh, soldier who Korax kind of left in charge, who literally breaks the rules to come and save the Legion from the... I never knew this happened. Mm-hmm. But he literally is the one who saved the Legion, what was left of it on uh, Istvan Five. Yep. Uh, but uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, this is three legions that are just done in terms yeah. of their contribution and <clears throat> no yeah and and i think that's the how of of the start but this is the why because it goes back before those events mm-hmm. and and we get to see um yes. y- there's this a lot of dialogue in the first three books about how like we had this great dream and and horus threw it all away and it's like but it wasn't great for everybody mm-hmm. and and it was really actually quite ugly under the surface, as you mentioned with the Emperor. And it's like, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. And I love it. So let's let's get into this sucker before so I start waxing the, poetically. The <laughs> thing I want to talk about before we talk about the story is, and again, Aaron does just such a great job with this. This book is about tone. Yes. It really is, because right out the gate, the Ultramarines are portrayed as soulless minions. I mean, they're almost servitor. You know, type people. Um, They're following orders to the letter. They don't care. The word bearers, by contrast, are portrayed as compassionate, sympathetic, aggrieved, which they have a damn good reason for that. Uh, And so this book is, you know, you can argue, I think, in some ways that this is really actually the first book you should read when you think about it, because the timelines are always so bizarre in the Heresy series. Yeah. And this book is almost like a overarching piece to the other three because the other three are almost like sub stories or subtitles within this book. You yeah. know, it, they're all kind of happening in the background while this is going on. Uh, but I, again, I think that tone is so important. We're going to point out some specific things. Uh, and uh, it's just, you know, I can see why. After you know, listening to this book again, I've read it how many times? Uh, why the word bearers are your favorite legion? I understand that, um, even in in the fortieth millennium, you know, forty first millennium. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right. So let's start. Yeah. Where we what we do is again. Here's a, a good example of where he kind of starts out either in the past or the present. Mm-hmm. So he's starting out in the past, and we're starting out on the planet. Uh, this, the, it starts out on the planet 4710, which is 47th Expeditionary Fleet, 10th planet, you know, put into compliance. Yep. And I'm going to kind of call this section for us the shaming of a legion. But as the yeah. story begins, we're taken back many years, like decades, to the planet Colchis, which is the homeworld of the word bearers. And we see a warrior in gray. He's arrived at a home of a young boy and his family, and he's taking the young boy to become 
an angel, you know, as they as they see them. And the boy's name is Argel Tal. Do not, listeners, forget that name. You will hear it many times. Yes. Um, but the most interesting thing here, the mother asked the warrior his name, and the individual who came to get Argel Tal is Erebus, mm-hmm. who is the chaplain of the word bearers. And that is like Boom! All if you know the stories already, we mentioned Erebus before. You're going, oh my gosh! Right, and and so now he takes you back into the present. You know, he yep. he, he drops this little thing, and then boom, here we are. Um, and we're on the planet forty seven ten. It's also known as Core, and uh-huh. it was placed into compliance by the Seventeenth Legion, which is the Word Bearers. You know, many years before. I think it's like 30 or 40 years before, 60 years, something like that. I think it was like that. It was 40-year gaps okay. here and there. Um, and the word bearers believe that the emperor of mankind, beloved by all if you ask the custodians, <laughs> uh, to be a god. They're worshiping him as mm-hmm. god. So every world they put into compliance, the people worship him as a god. And they're incredibly loyal. That's one thing you can say about all the word bearers, compliance planets. They're incredibly loyal to the Emperor and the Imperium. Uh, and we're taken to a specific city on the planet called Monarchia, which is probably the most beautiful city on the planet. And we're, we're shown that the people in the city are watching all of a sudden these stars rain down from the sky. And... Yep. They believe that the angels have returned to them, and the angels are the bearers of the word. These are their space marines. You know, yes. they've come, and they're they're so excited that their angels have come back. Um, but as they watch, these uh, stars turn into gunships, and the colors are weird. The colors are blue and with gold trim, and they're going. What is this? This isn't, <laughs> this isn't the gray that we expected. Um, and as the angels, quote, exit from the gunships, they're clad in the same colors, that blue and gold. Yep. They cold, very coldly, like I said, almost servitor voice, state that they're from the 13th Legion, which is the Ultramarines. Uh, and that all the residents, I mean, they don't even explain anything. They just say, look, you have got six days to evacuate your city. I mean, imagine that, Doug. You, Mm-hmm. <laughs> these space marines get out of this and they're not even your space marines they're they're as they call them they're false angels yeah and you hey leave your city like what <laughs> you know uh, i Just, i i don't yeah i mean i'm trying to imagine like what their perspective is because all the all the things look the look right like the thunderhawks coming down the angels mm-hmm. come visiting they have similar armor all these kinds of deals and then you see them and they're just like i don't like the cut of your jib and you know the jib <laughs> is reboot gilliman <laughs> the 17th yeah, yeah. primark and, <laughs> or 13th, and the rather. other thing they add is that on the seventh day your leaders will be allowed to send a single distress call and they're like well what about what happens on the seventh day and they don't answer their questions you know they're just like get out of the city and thousands of people are killed because they're trying, they don't want to live. This is their home. This is where they live their life. They've done nothing wrong. Um, And of course the resistance is crushed within hours. I mean, there's, you know, no, no way you're going to fight space Marines. Um, But millions literally leave their lives behind. And what are they going to like 
there's nothing outside of the city on this planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we are also very importantly in this part of the story introduced to what we're going to call a companion, a young lady. Her name is Cyrene Valantian. Yep. And we kind of see the events of the first six days through her eyes. We're hearing a lot of her perspective on what's going on. And she's actually the first one to call these uh, ultramarines false angels because she sees their colors and so forth. Tone is so important here about the way these marines talk to her and talk to others. It's like, citizen, you yep. must evacuate. You have three days. <laughs> like, yes. Okay. Uh, and then on the seventh day, uh, Cyrene, of course, has evacuated like everyone else. She's standing in the hills overlooking the city, and she's looking back to see what's going to happen. I mean, this is kind of like the, uh, what is it, Lot, you know, when God told him not to turn around in the Bible yep. and look back at Sodom and Gomorrah. Yep. You know, she looks, and the sky gets very bright, like really, really bright. And... Mm. So what do you think so far? I think it was probably uh, one of the best introductions because the planet, uh, or at least the city, right, of of Monarchia, Mm -hmm. um, which represents a lot of the life and hustle and bustle on the planet, um, it is a place that is depicted as being very colorful because they are a worshipful people. Um, the Ultramarines were sent here to basically crush religious belief. So when they come down, they're like, oh, we see our angel stuff. And the Space Marines are all cold and, like, efficient. And they don't, you know, the word bearers would have reacted differently coming in there and be like, oh, hey, my brothers and whatever we're calling our belief system, you know, like, and, mm. and, and just kind of been friendly. But that coldness was very, very much felt. Um, and then... You know, I, I guess nice of them to give them a week, but man, <laughs> like, uh, the the amount of like, it, it would be honestly like asking America to be like, hey guys, just go ahead and stop using electricity, right? Because these guys have to move outside of the only like hab zone <laughs> mm-hmm. on the planet for a bit. True. So it's like, this is ridiculous. Um, an entire planet became refugees, but also still trapped. And so... Uh, it's kind of an interesting situation they got. And then, I mean, but you mentioned, like, Lot's wife from, from the Bible, and I think that's very on point because the scale of this kind of destruction, they haven't seen since the first word bearers came. And they came not peacefully, of course, but mm-hmm. not nearly as aggressive as, you know, dooming the whole city. No. But regardless, the destruction looks biblical is what I'm trying to get at. So yeah. as you have an entire people that are now persecuted for their beliefs they see a biblical level catastrophe happen to their home like it doesn't solve the problem of them believing in the supernatural like all you're doing is just feeding the fire <laughs> right it, and this so, gets yeah. to the stupidity of the emperor for thinking yes gonna do anything cool right plan yeah we get great bonehead <laughs> uh yeah, and one of the things I think is interesting about Cyrene, and it talks it talks to her character, is right out the gate she asks the question, why? She says the word why like a hundred times. Like, why are you doing this? Right. Why do you, you know, why, 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 why? Uh, and, <laughs> and it's a great question because they tell them nothing. Yep. They have no idea. They've done everything they've been asked to do. And it's not enough. So uh, we talked about the sky growing bright. She literally, her eyes are burnt out. 
her retinas are just destroyed from this. She is blinded, we think permanently, at least at this point, uh, by the light. Uh, and then the story switches. And mm -hmm. we go to the outer reaches of the system that contains planet 4710. Yep. And, and just a few at first, and then hundreds, and then literally thousands of spaceships just come into they're just going like full blast bore they've been going through the warp they probably lost ships <laughs> there's an entire fleet that has arrived at 4710 now and it is the word bearers this is their planet these are their people and right away you get this feeling of that tone difference where these these marines want to know what happened to their people yeah you know it's it's just so obvious and we meet several characters mm -hmm. um, yeah this is a big meet and greet section <laughs> so you meet um argel tall is mm -hmm. he's now a chapter master as we call them in in the old legions and he's one zaphon is the uh, chaplain and yep. in argel tall is each chapter has a name his uh his chapter is the Serrated Sons, and Zaphon is the chaplain for his chapter. Yep. Uh, and Torgal, we meet him. He's another space marine. We meet Daggertal. We meet Malnor. You know these names again. And, of course, we meet Lorgar. Yep. We meet Erebus again, uh, all these years later. And we meet Corferon, who is – it's a very troubled, I think – dysfunctional relationship between Lorgar and Corferon, who is like his adopted father. Yes. Um, and if you read the Primark book, it is such an emotionally abusive relationship. Yes. And it's just so tragic um, yeah. that Corferon gets away with this. You know? well, <laughs> and I think that's a, it's a huge thing to touch on. I'm going to make it really quick because it's a small note here, but like... Sure. A lot of the Primarchs, when they landed on planets, either fended for themselves and gained reputation, like Conrad Kurz or Lehman Russ, whatever. Mm. Some of them were used. So, like, honestly, I feel like most of them were put to work by people, whether it's, you know, the Death Guard guy being able to create new kinds of weapons or, oh, you know, all kinds of stuff. We definitely don't see a lot of them that are manipulated because they tend to be too cunning. But we have a very emotional manipulation set up here and so it's like that's kind of a unique thing about Lorgar it's not like you know badass you're not going to cue a metal riff to it but it's <laughs> but well, it's meaningful <laughs> you use the word emotional I think that's a perfect word to use for Lorgar and like you said that's so out of character for, I don't think we've really ever met any other Primarch who is as emotional as Lorgar. Now, you could argue, you know, Lehman Roos, but that's ferocity. That's not emotion. Mm -hmm. uh, and Lorgar, yeah, he is, <laughs> he's a very emotional person. Yeah. I'm going to say... played on that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I would say probably a loyalist version is the Raven Guard. Um, Corax. Corax, yes. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, <laughs> go on. That was my little interjection. So, you know, as you're listening, listeners, you might want to write down those names I just mentioned. Because, again, you'll hear them again uh, regularly during the story. Uh, so they get here, and the entire 17th Legion, we're talking 100,000 Space Marines. Just think of the logistics of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and their Primark come down to the surface to see what has happened. 
And after Lorgar arrives to see what's going on, Primarch of the 13th Legion, Gulliman, he arrives, and Malkador, the Sigilite, uh, arrives, who is the Emperor's right-hand man, a very powerful psyker, uh, kind of a, a wise person in terms of his personality. He always tries to speak softly and make a point kind of thing. Well, he's talking to Lorgar and trying to explain what's happening. Lorgar has not, he like literally just backhands Malkador and knocks him like 50 feet along yes. the Yes. And you're going, oh my, he just smacked around the Emperor's like regent. <laughs> and and to make it worse, Gilliman, of course, makes some smarmy comment, and Lorgar just punches his brother in the face. Good. And it's like, <laughs> yes, absolutely. He does and this is the tone thing, Doug, where you even listening to Gilliman the way he speaks to to Lorgar, yep, you're like, yep. yeah. I'm glad you punched his butt, you know? <laughs> um, and so Lorgar is just confused because he doesn't understand what Malkador is saying because he even asked him, you know, what does my father think? And Malkador told him, he says, your father knows what happened here. He understands. He's the reason we did this. And Lorgar is like, what? Like, what are you saying? Yeah. You know, and... So Malkador kind of recovers and stands up and he looks up into the sky and he basically says, he's not listening to me. He, he doesn't want to hear what I have to say. And all of a sudden, this huge, of course, golden light appears. Yes. Boom. And the emperor appears. And okay. he want okay. to talk about what happens next once the emperor, because this is so just... It's so horrific, really. So one thing I wanted to touch on here is that, like, why did if he was there aboard the ship, why did he send Malkador? And I don't <laughs> like that. It's just, again, it's more distancing himself from Lorgar. But so he does come down and explains to him, like, you're a moron. You missed the whole point of the Imperial Truth. Um, it basically you know, gives him the plot, I think, in a rather snide and, and condescending way. Yes. And then makes the entire legion, so an entire legion of like, what is it, 100,000 space marines? Yes. yes. Line up in rank, and they all have to bend down and kneel in the ashes of what was essentially their great work of worship to the emperor. And they are essentially shamed. Every single one of them has to kneel, including Lorgar, every piece of leadership, everything. Um, everybody has to bend knee to not just the emperor, but also their own shame. Like that was the point. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't for a lack of reverence to the emperor. It was, uh, mm -hmm. it was, it was regarding the city's construction and its purpose and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, around them are all the ultramarines standing there with their bolters all out. So it's just a very, uh, degradating situation for them. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you know, in that moment, the emperor created the animosity and the feud, the blood feud, really, between the ultramarines and the word bearers here in that moment. Oh, yeah. And I mean, and yeah. The consequences of which we're going to talk about soon. <laughs> yes, are my favorite book. We can talk about that towards the end. Yeah. <laughs> millions and millions of people killed because the emperor is an idiot. 
Yeah, uh, well, and I understand like having a legion come in and and do the destruction, but like you pit them as enemies when you have them surround one another, or mm. you know, like the it just there was a lot of ways to do it that didn't require one legion be subjugated to another. Why and, could he have not? We we know, you know, Doug, as we read further into the book, why? But why could the Emperor not have explained to Lorgar and had him do it? As hard as that would have been, if he would have explained to Lorgar and answered questions, Lorgar would have done it, perhaps hesitantly, but he would have done it, you know? Yeah. And like you said, it would have avoided that issue of the the conflict between two space marine legions. I mean, I think it's the same mistake that a lot of the fathers of the Primarchs did, which is that mm. the Emperor treated him like a tool, and Lorgar is a person. You need to talk to a person. You need to instruct a tool. So it's like, yes. Yes. Uh, he just he just didn't. He, he's not getting that Dad of the Year mug. So no, <laughs> not at all. And and even worse to to make it just just pound them into the sand. He assigns 20 of his custodians, kind of his watchdogs to monitor the 17th Legion. Yep. And these guys are going to be permanently assigned for the next 50 years. I think they said to the word bearers to make sure they're doing what they've been asked to do, which is, you know, force worlds into compliance faster yep. and make sure that they're not worshiping me. Um, but 20 custodians just to, over overwatch that's all they are is overseers basically yes and and they're not just um tattletales like custodians have their own <laughs> level of authority that exceeds i mean they can probably go toe-to-toe in terms of like giving authority and commands as logar but mm -hmm. it, it completely breaks up company structure to have you know your captain give you an order and then a custodian standing there saying something else right it, it just messes with it just is a huge cog it's like you know, like if you're at work and your boss is on vacation, that first day they come back and you just feel like you're being watched under a microscope. <laughs> and you're like, why are you here? Everything was great before you came back. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yes, that's my take on it. That's my take on yeah, Space Marines. That's, great. that's a great way to look at it for sure. Um, yeah, so all those things, the Legion is absolutely shamed. Lorgar's beliefs are absolutely shattered. Because the emperor says to him specifically, I am not a god. Do not worship me. And this is like, this is Lorgar's thing. Yeah. Um, and so so we have that. Um, and kind of on a minor note after this, the uh, word bearers are looking at the surrounding area to find survivors, which they would have expected to find. Mm -hmm. And they find a group of survivors, including Cyrene, who we met in the first part of the book. Yes. Um, and she really, at this point, becomes a very important part of the story. I mean, she's got all these wounds that are infected and she's gaunt and dehydrated. She's almost dead. And yep. literally, again, this tone piece, you see Argo Tal, like this huge space marine, gently pick her up and hold her in his arms and carry her. And you're going, mm -hmm. wow. Like, after all that just happened to him, he's still willing to do, to be human in that of way. Of course. Yeah. And it was, I thought that was really powerful. And um, listeners, you're going to find that this is the beginning of a, a very um, intimate 
not in any physical way, very intimate relationship between Cyrene and Argaltal. Um, I think in a lot of ways, Doug, she, she becomes his real connection to humanity. Oh, yes. He yeah. just clings to that. And um, very much a symbol of what they lost. I mean. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. Uh, let's so. see. I think. Oh, one thing I did want to touch on just very briefly. If you remember back in False Gods, I believe. Okay. There's a, there's a moment where Horus is injured and all of his little coterie are like, we can't let everyone see him all beat up and sad. Oh. Uh and they're kind of a bit of a vanity there. Well, switch to this. Lorgar had to bow like everybody else did. And it said that he was the last one to stand. Like, he mm. he just couldn't he couldn't get up. He, it, he was broken. The dude the mm -hmm. dude broke his religion and his belief system and his life and everything. And it's just an interesting counterpoint that, like, as we're seeing, you know, all the bravado of the lunar wolves who become sons of Horus, um, here we have, like, their primarch of the word bearer side let himself he let himself show humility and humanity mm -hmm. and i thought that was an interesting just just choice i mean it doesn't necessarily mean anything grand but i thought it was a great uh depiction of, of how they chose to act differently yeah and when you bring that up with him not being able to get up i think another minor note that's it is of note is that argo tall was one of the two space marines who actually lifted his primarch back onto his feet Yes. And Lorgar remembers that. Yep. Um, that was very important to him uh, as the story moves on that Argaltal was there for him. So. Yep. Um, okay. So shall we move on to 4716? Yes, please. Okay. So this is, you know, they have a new mission. They mm -hmm. have a new... Uh, I think this I is three we'll, years later. Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah. We're, okay. we're moving in 40-year blocks. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah, I think that's... Isn't that right? I think... I think this one is three. Three years. It's, okay, it's, it's pretty close. Three, right. A yep. little bit. Yeah, the next one's 40 years. Yep. Uh, so, um, we're moving on to the planet 4716, and the Legion is going to be putting them into compliance, and Lorgar wants this planet specifically to be kind of a cleansing and fire and a redemption for the Legion. That's mm -hmm. what he wants this to be. Uh, he wants it to be quick. He wants it to be thorough. And uh, one of the things that we see here is that Cyrene has become a real confidant to Argal Tall. He will go to her constantly just to talk and just to kind of unload, you know, almost like a therapist. Yes, and, yes. And she, she receives a very specific role in the Legion, but... Uh, so he's recalling all the events on 4716 to Cyrene. So we kind of hear it through their their words. Um, and one of the interesting thing here is we're introduced to something called the Carthage Cohort. Yes. And it's a group of Mechanicum units that are a very integral part of the word bears. There's several uh, Mechanicum units spread out through the fleet. But the Carthage cohort is the one that's assigned to Argal Tal's chapter, the Serrated Sons. And basically, these are all robots that walk, you know, like man-type robots. Um, and one of the robots I think is really cool, his name is Incarnadine. And he is basically a Castellan, if you can picture that from 40K. That's what this kind of looks like. Uh, and the... 
these robots are such an integral part of the Legion that some of them have actually been accepted as honorary members yes. of the Legion and are treated as equals by the Space Marines. And Carnadine is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the unit's led by a tech priest. His name is Xenu73. Uh, typical Mechanicum tech priest, you know. But uh, one of the things is our, in Carnadine is in a lot of scenes. He doesn't do much until near the end of the book, but he's always there. He's always standing guard. Yep. He's always just waiting for something to happen. And <laughs> it was really cool to see them fight because on this planet, the the cohort fought. And it, just a cool, I think, element yeah. that he added to the story. Um, yeah, so, just a way to splash in other factions for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, and... We're not going to talk about the specifics. I don't think of the compliance. There's some interesting pieces to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some artif- something they call artificials and some other things going on. But compliance is achieved in the end. Yep. And so Lorgar arrives planet side. He's joined by, as always, Corferon and Erebus. Now, they're they are his, you know, kind of his. <laughs> I don't know what you want to call it, but they're always there with him. Yeah. Uh, and so. The first thing I thought was really interesting, Doug, was the Assembled Legion, their Primarch arrives, they all drop to their knees out of abeyance to him. And he was like, we're done kneeling. Stand up. Exactly. Don't, don't kneel to me. We're done with that. <laughs> and I thought that was such a great moment. And it must have been such a great feeling for those 100,000 Marines. Like, yeah, okay. we don't do this anymore. <laughs> we're better than this. And that was really, really cool. Um, it was interesting too that uh there's a group of custodians because what they did was they broke them up into like four different groups so 20 and there's five of them who are with this particular fleet that argal tall's part about and they're led by a custodian named aqualon mm-hmm. uh, and they've kind of assisted in the compliance operations so they're there on the ground and lorgar asks that they head back to the ship because he has a message for his sons and just his sons. Right. And it's just, I thought the conversation between Aqualon and Lorgar was kind of funny, how they're both trying to be respectful and, you know, maintain decorum. But finally, and Aqualon won't leave. Yeah. And finally, <laughs> Lorgar, and I have to read this quote for you listeners because this is great. Yes, this is Lorgar says to Aqualon, and all these custodians, you are a flock of genetic toys pieced together in a laboratory from piles of biological scrap. You are so far beneath me, I wouldn't piss on your bodies even if you were aflame. And then, it's <laughs> so awesome. And then he simply says two words. He says, Corferon. And Corferon orders the entire legion to point their bolters at the custodians. Yep. I, they they impact they in oh, trouble. We are done with you. That that was what that was. And of course the custodians are like, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they leave. And <laughs> just a wonderful scene. That that entire scene with him and his legion, Lorgar and the and the word bearish, was amazing. Um just and it, it really was redemption, wasn't it? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Yeah, it it was um I would say it was also the turning point when it's like, no, you know what? We're, we're done being beat up on. No more shame. You don't kneel. And then also, you know, he's like, I want to talk to my sons. 
we're going to be here. No, I'm talking to my sons. And then just like, you know, a whole line of soldiers points up and it's like you know technically no lines were crossed but i think we get the sense that between aquilin and lorgar they're trying to keep that decorum and see which one of them will break first and be like this is what i want so the other can report on them yeah and so it ended up being lorgar and he got what he wanted and i like it yeah and and of course to your point who could report on who you know look Custodians can go back to the ship and send a, a message back to Terra saying this just happened. Yeah. Um, if they want. But again, uh, like treachery's not happening yet. So like no, no one's no, no one no one would accuse him of being a traitor. It's just no, Lorgar's no. being a pill. <laughs> yeah. And the Emperor probably would be like, whatever. Yeah. That's Lorgar. Uh, so the custodians do leave, and Lorgar tells his legion that they're returning to their home planet of Colchis. Yep. And some important things happen here, and again, in terms of tone and in terms of some meetings that take place. So uh, the word bearers go back uh, home, and they bring with them, interestingly enough, this small group of survivors, including Cyrene, uh, to Colchis, and they become celebrities, which is really interesting. Yep. Uh, <laughs> And they're going to be – they're literally – they're parades now that are going to be held in honor of these pilgrims who have survived the destruction of Kor. Um, and Cyrene actually gets uh, – people start calling her the Blessed Lady. Mm-hmm. And it's – she doesn't know what to make of any of this. It's so fun to see her reaction to it all. Remembering she's blind, you know, for all this. Yep. Um, it was just wonderful uh, to see that. And the survivors are kind of escorted um, by the serrated sons. Again, Argotal and Torgal and Zaphon and all those to their special quarters. Um, and here again, you see this humanity of the 17th Legion where um, one of the Marines actually calls her little mistress. I think it's Torgal has a nickname for her. Mm-hmm. Um, Zaphon calls her Shulasha, which was kind of the the um what is it the monarchian term for her role you know as a companion yeah. but they're using very intimate names very familiar names with her and yep. that was cool and then the thing i thought was amazing was as the marines are walking along you know their armor is just coated with these oath scrolls and it was a tradition that they would roll these up and they would hand them to just common people on the side of the parade route and there's a mother who's holding a baby that I think Argyle Tall handed one to, and some old man who could barely walk gets another, and you're just like, these these Marines are just freaking amazing. Um, you almost just wanted to be maudlin, just seeing the way they treated people. Um, yeah. As opposed to the way you kind of think about Space Marines treating human beings. Um, yeah, it, it was really cool. I, I love that uh, part of the story. So um, while this is taking place, though, Lorgar comes back to his – there's like a big building in the – it's called the City of Grey Flowers. The mm-hmm. moonflower, I guess, is the moon lily is their kind of symbolic symbol or yep. symbolic flower. And he's met by Magnus. Magnus is waiting for him when he gets back. So why don't you talk to us about their conversation and what happens? With, uh, what's her name? With, with uh, Magnus. Yes. So, 
essentially, Magnus, if you don't recall, we kind of touched on him before, is incredibly powerful psyker. Like, he just, he understands and navigates the warp like his brothers can't. And so, uh, as the news of what's going on with Lorgar and his legion is reaching other fleets and, and what's happening, it's all, it's all just rumors, it's hot goss <laughs> among Space Marine, I'm sure, right. legions. Um, but as it reaches him, like, Lorgar is asking him questions, like, you know, this happened to me. What is, first of all, why did this happen? And secondly, like, if if is it true that the Emperor is not a god? If not, what is he in the greater context of the warp? Like, if there's something bigger than him, what is it? I mean, I think that's kind of the driving, the question, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and essentially just asks, you know, are there other powers out there? And, and what is the nature of the warp? And Magnus is very hesitant. You can see he's being very dodgy. You know, he's like, well, there's not, like, people in there. It's like, what does that mean? Well, you know, it's not like they have, like, <laughs> calendars. You know, like, what are you talking about, man? Like, and and we know as readers, you know, if you know much about the background for the other legions, like, Magnus has already made a deal with powers unknown hitherto. <sighs> He lost his eye because of it. And so it's like, there's a lot of things going on that Magnus could provide context for, but doesn't. And lets Lorgar figure this stuff out on his own, blind. You know, I mean, just he doesn't have the connection with the warp that Magnus does. And it just ends up kind of being a disaster, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's just the things that Magnus was saying, like, you know, you're... You're trying to force a question. You're trying to force an answer into a question that shouldn't be asked kind of a thing. And just don't go there. You know? Yeah. That's what it was. It's not important. You just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Um, it was It was a fascinating conversation on an important part of the story, I think. No, it um, was. Because, I, and I this is the part that I touch on when I say like, I love the word bearers for their what they represent and and is that human capacity of like if not this then what like and Mm -hmm. and we just need ways to make sense of our very chaotic world and so again Lorgar is still a very broken person um and so you know he's reaching out to his brother to be like you've seen so much more than me what's out there and instead of arming him with knowledge Magnus is like I don't know but you probably shouldn't go looking definitely shouldn't go looking Probably bad. <laughs> you know, in the emotional part that we talk, I mean, Lorgar is literally pleading. He's begging. Mm-hmm. You could just, you can just feel the intonation changing in his voice. He's desperate. Yeah. And that desperation comes out in in his words and in the conversation again. And uh, I think the conversation to me, if nothing else, it motivated Lorgar even more to look for answers and it was just it just forced him farther into his obsession mm-hmm. you know absolutely it was sad but um so so that goes on and then later there's a, a small piece but important uh that Cyrene's brought before Lorgar and that's really a beautiful little uh you know part of the story and he appoints her as a confessor uh, to his sons, to all of the word bearers. So she's yep. now a permanent part of the 17th Legion and confessors are really 
pretty high up important, especially in a a legion that's kind of, you know, quote, religious like this. Mm-hmm. It's really, really important. And, you know, obviously she accepts the role and it was really cool that that's where she ended up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she essentially had the same role as some of the characters from the first three books, like the, um, the recorders or historians that were along and mm-hmm. the space Marines would go to them for like insight or, you know, a little mm-hmm. bit of moral guidance. And she just yeah. kind of took all those roles in one. It was just like, yep, I know what to do. <laughs> that is <laughs> like, so cool. Yeah, absolutely. So cool. Um, anything else about this meeting and what was going on when they went back to Colchis? Uh, is there something specific you want me to talk about? I don't think so. I mean, whatever else you think. Is there anything else you think is pertinent? Uh, oh. um, no, I just, I really like the the sympathetic descriptions of everybody. Like, you might ask yourself, well, how in the heck did she become a confessor or the blessed lady? But it's like, those same things happen in the Imperium not long after this, when women start getting blown up and... They become martyrs, and then all of a sudden we have Sisters of Battle, which is a whole thing that's built on martyrdom, bearing the scars of the great fight, which now Cyrene is 10,000 years before. Like, it just seems that the the path of worship, I don't know, both connecting humanity and also rotting it from the inside within the word bearers uh-huh. is, is just a, a prequel to what happens to the Imperium as a whole. Yeah, and in your point, you know, we've we've discussed Ifrady Keeler. Yes. Uh, on yes, the yes. other side, on the Imperial side, you know. And same thing. She was just she was just a person, just just a young woman. And yep. look what she became. So uh yeah, happened on both sides for sure. So awesome. shall we move on to the primordial truth? Let's do it. Okay. So now we're moving forty years later. This is the forty year thing here. And mm-hmm. This part of this, this is what I, I loved about the the way Aaron wrote the book. But we're kind of s- starting this part. It, it's a start, but it begins with an ending. So what we see is a scene where this this group of serrated sons, and you know, almost everybody except Argotal just lies dead. They're inside of a spaceship, and this compartment is just full of dead space marines. Yep, and they're all dead or dying at least around Argal Tal and he's confronted there's this huge hideous demon named Ingefell it's like a worm and a snake and an insect and just mm-hmm. horrific and this thing just kills him it kills him very easily it, it doesn't even have to think about it he's dead and he wakes up and all of a sudden he finds the rest of his serrated sons and Zaphon all doing the same they're just kind of waking up and they're like where's the demon where's Ingefell? where what's going on they just wake up <laughs> and yeah. they find themselves on this ship it's called the orpheo's lament the entire human crew is dead and they're inside what will become you know known as the eye of terror yes um but it's like all this has all happened at the beginning of this section of the book. The ship is severely damaged, no warp travel essentially. Uh, Argotal orders the ship to return to the fleet, in other words, to leave the eye, because they're just in the midst of this warp 
energy. And the funny thing is you're going like, well, you have all these questions that you're asking when you're reading this, like, how did this demon get inside the ship? What happened to the war, you know, the Geller fields? Why is everybody dead? All this did was make you ask like 50 questions. Yep. <laughs> and yep. so they get back to the fleet and out of the hundred word bearers who are originally on the ship as it was deployed, there's only 38 left. So two thirds of them had died. And the ones who were alive had have had to turn to cannibalism. They've had to eat their fellow word bearers. They've had to eat these desiccated bodies. Um, if you can imagine, and I know it's hard to believe, but there are these are gaunt. They're dehydrated. And the weirdest thing is in they get back to the fleet and they make contact with the De Profundis, which is the ship that Lorgar's on. Um, and Seven months of time have passed in the Orpheus Lament since they were going to find out why they were where they were, why they ended up with this demon, all that. But only one minute has passed in yep. real space. Just so bizarre. And when they make contact with the De Profundis, Argel Tall literally says that the Eye of Terror is the place where gods and mortals meet. And this was a big thing throughout the earlier parts of the book, Lorgar wanted to find a place because it was in Colchisian lore and all those things where gods and mortals meet. Well, they found it. Yes. Uh, and yep. so once aboard the Day Profundus, Lorgar goes to Argel Tall, basically in his little, you know, in the apothecarian. He has a bunch of books and inks and quills. And he says, tell me everything that has happened. And, one of the most, and you kind of lose it as you're listening or reading, but he looks in Argotel's eyes. This is the Primarch looking right at him. He says, Argotel, you have two souls. Like, wow. wow dang. Yeah. Yep. Something ain't right. Oh my gosh, Doug. All that stuff. And like, you want the, and you get the answers to all your questions, but man, that it was just, almost too much like you you had so many questions from just this short part of the book um it was it was pretty crazy um, yeah absolutely um and yeah exactly and this whole thing is just lorgar trying to find god but he keeps sending his best men like into the mouth of hell go find god for me which is just a fun little <laughs> oh, and and here you know you you talked about that this is where you understand a dark side of Lorgar in that he is willing to sacrifice literally anything or anyone in order to find his answers. Absolutely. Yeah, he's a zealot without a religion at this point. Yeah, including his own sons who he acts, you know, like, I treasure these people. They are family to me. They are so important. Uh, well, maybe not. So... Okay, so that's the beginning. <laughs> right. That's, it's kind of the end of the story, but the beginning. So now we arrive back. We're, we're kind of flying back in time before all these things we just talked about. And we arrive on the eighth planet. I thought that was an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. um, brought into compliance by the 17th Legion in the last three years that they've been going around this 40-year time span. Yep. And the planet is really, really close to... 
a massive warp storm. Yes, uh, which we're which is the eye essentially, uh, and the master of Ath- Astropaths, his name is Delvia. Mm-hmm. He tells Lorgar that it is screaming. This warp storm is absolutely screaming. And it is the warp storm. It's not just a warp. It is the warp yes. storm that yep. he has ever seen. Um, and he also tells Lorgar that something on the planet is screaming even louder than the storm. And Lorgar kind of looks at him and says, well, you know what? I'm hearing voices and they're calling my name. <laughs> <laughs> Through the void of space. That's not good. Like, don't, an- don't answer <laughs> that. <laughs> no. <laughs> So we make Planetfall mm-hmm. on this planet, uh, which is, is such a great reveal here. Uh, the Warp Bearers are accompanied by Vendata, who is one of the custodians. Lorgar is going down here. And you've got uh, Argotal, Zaphon, the, the chaplain, yep. and maybe, I don't know, what, about half a dozen of the Serrated Sons all go down with Lorgar. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and again, you have this custodian, because Aqualon wanted him to go along to make sure that you know, he sees what's going on. Um, and Lorgar meets with a young woman. And this the people they meet here are very tribal, very, very tribal. You almost mm-hmm. picture them as prehistoric people, you know, just wearing loincloths and leather skins and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, very, very primitive. But one of the things they notice is that there are Colchisian. Oh, by the way, they're speaking Colchisian to him, to Lorgar. Yep. It, He's like, what? Because Vendata can't understand this. The custodian's like, is he speaking Colchisian? Yep. And there are Colchisian runes everywhere. They're on her body. They're just all over the place. And she says to Lorca, we've been waiting for you for a yeah. long time. Where have you been, bro? Yeah. <laughs> and you're the favorite son of the true pantheon. He's going, what? The true pantheon? Well, we know, of course, because we're all... Listeners, we're all well-informed. We know this is the four chaos gods, um, mm-hmm. so which don't exist, by the way. Um, and, you know, he's hearing these things, and you could almost, Doug, just feel him. It's almost like a drug to him now. Like, this is just making him more and more obsessed and more and more crazy the yeah. more of this stuff he hears, because it's exactly what he wants to hear. Yeah, I mean, not only not only do gods exist, but you are their favorite. Oh, <laughs> and she says that her name is Ingefell. Ooh, we just heard that name. Yep. Uh, her her name is Ingefell the Chosen, and she's soon to be Ingefell the Ascended. Now, here's the giant reveal. This planet's name is Cadia. Yeah, nerds. <laughs> oh, when I read that the first time, it was like, oh, my God. Cadia? No. Yeah. But then you think about it, it's like, well, yeah, that's it's exactly what hell. Katie would be. And, <laughs> oh, my gosh. It was so cool. Um, it, it was so cool the way they brought it into the heresy, you know, yeah. and made that connection. So they they literally spend weeks listening to the Cadians, uh, mm-hmm. researching their writings because the writings all over the cave, these cave walls or just with caves. Yeah, and keep in and, mind what they're describing is that language and like history mm. moved planet to planet across the universe mm-hmm. before faster than light travel. So like, it's crazy that they can speak Colchis. <laughs> yes, 
and sorry, I just want to point you, that out. You know, this this just reinforces what you just said. This just reinforces the whole point that they didn't have space travel. So, what was able to allow them to do that? Well, the implication is it was these it was these gods, absolutely, you know, that did this. Yeah, and um, if we went to Mars and there's just a guy sitting out there with a cup of tea, he's just like, "Good day, Governor," you know, speaking with a British accent. <laughs> Like right. they do in Star Wars, apparently, you know, where you're just like, I don't get this, but it feels evil. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. I don't know what the dark side is, but I know it's okay. Whatever that is. Right? You guys took colonialism way too far. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, again, weeks and weeks listening, researching, uh, and finally, Lorgar Vendata and the rest of the word bearers that are there, our girl tall and his guys, they're asked to attend a ritual. And at the center of this ritual is Ingefell, all painted up with Kalchizian constellations. Mm-hmm. She has a serrated sun on her torso, which is really interesting that she picked that particular symbol. Um, and there are 10 spears. Like You kind of get the Vlad the Impaler thing kind of pictured here. But there are ten spears, and nine of them have tribesmen impaled on them. And Ingefell says to Lorgar, you have to choose the tenth sacrifice. Well, okay, but we kind of forgot the custodian in the corner here. Yeah. This You think about a custodian. He's seeing this barbarian ritual going on. It's just so anti-emperor anti-imperial truth this is total treason this is just horrific because Lorgar is letting this go on he won't stop it and Vendata keeps telling him stop this thing and even Argyll Tall is like are you going to let this go on Argyll Tall is even in disbelief that this is happening and Vendata accuses Lorgar of treason and he's going to try to teleport back to the ship that warrant Aqualon well that's not happening because they blocked the signal. They knew what was going to happen, Lord right. Arms guys. So Vendata just knows he's done. He can't leave. So he wants to just do as much as he can. He's not stupid enough to attack Lorgar because that won't work. So he kills several of the word bearers. And Zaphon and Argyll Tall are not going to tolerate them, you know, him just killing their brothers. So he's shot by Zaphon several times, like in the face. And then Argyll Tall goes over to finish him off with his swords. And Ven was a friend. You know, this isn't something he wanted to do. No, of course, yeah. And you could just see Lorgar. You could picture him just standing there like, okay, just, I'm just going to let this go on because I'm cool with this. It doesn't matter. The interesting thing I thought was, first of all, we know Vendata is going to be the 10th sacrifice, but... Argo Tall still can't believe what's going on. He can't believe he actually killed a custodian. And he tries to shield Ven's body. He doesn't want him to be the sacrifice. Yeah. Lorgar says to him, you move out of the way. This is Argo Tall. This is the guy that lifted him up off the ground um, on core. This right. is a guy who he's made a chapter master. He says, if you don't move out of the way, I will kill you. Yep. He's this again, perfect evidence. It doesn't matter what he has to sacrifice to find his truth. Yeah. Uh, well, and it, it puts all of his relationships in perspective. You know, Argo Tall now realizes like, 
I mean nothing compared to Lorgar's search. Like, it's not even... He doesn't even understand enough to be devout to whatever these creatures are. It's literally just the clue of where to go next. He is higher than rank than his own sons. Yeah. It's, like, it, messed up. It's just so screwed up. And, again, you know, here's that tone piece where Argyle Tal is actually defending the body of a dead, almost dead custodian. Um, as the ritual concludes now, because they have the tenth sacrifice. They're, yep. They impale Vendada on this thing while he's still alive. It's just horrific. Um, Ingefell, the young woman, kind of rises into the air. You can just kind of picture this. This is such a meme, you know? Yes. She's kind of floating in the air. And all of a sudden, just huge chunks of skin just get ripped off her body by some <laughs> unseen forces. Um, and there's just this mound of flesh lying on the ground. Yep. And this demon Ingefell that we talked about earlier rises, this snake-like uh, worm-like insect thing, uh, and it's just absolutely a hideous countenance. It's just horrible, and it speaks to Lorgar. <laughs> it's like oh, I, I know I'm I'm meant to talk to this guy. He said that he was sent by one of the gods that yep. Lorgar is looking for. Yep. Well, Lorgar again. He, this is just feeding him. He, he's just like he's doing coke or something, man. He's just like, ah, more and more, right? Yep. They, um, yes, they got him on the hook. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. Um, and he tells Lorgar that he'll need his sons. And if you give me your sons, I'll guide them into the Eye of Terror. Uh, and Lorgar says, will you hurt my sons? And he's like, yeah. And yep. Lorgar is like, okay. <laughs> yep. Is this going to end poorly? Yes, it will. Okay. For everybody but Lorgar. <laughs> so they they go into this kind of private conversation, uh, Lorgar and Ingefell. And, you know, Lorgar comes out and says, we're doing this. And uh, so they figure out a ship they're going to use. It's a very slim attack aircraft used for scouting and exploration. It's called the Orpheus Lament. Has a thousand human crew. They're going to put a hundred space marines. And Ingefell, this demon, is coming on board the ship. That we're not going to talk specifics, but that is just wild to see what happens when this demon comes on board the ship and what happens yep. to the human crew and crazy stuff. Um, yeah, this and this is all backfill for um, what happened earlier, right? No, 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 yes. never mind. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. Is, this leads us up to that specific moment. Um, so during the journey to the eye, it's really interesting that uh, Ingefell shows Argyll Tal two very important things. First of all, he shows him and the other other serrated sons the fall of the Eldar and mm -hmm. the creation of the Eye of Terror when Slanesh was created. Yep, um, he, that's what happened, you know. And they're all like, "Oh my gosh, there's a real god, and this is what you know." The Xenos race died, and then. It, more interesting, though, and this for me was so uh, formative when I came to understand the, the whole 40K, 30K universe. He takes them to a laboratory. Mm -hmm. So it's a gene laboratory. It's full of these embryonic cells, and they contain the 20 primarchs. Yeah. Uh, 20, by the way, not 18, because uh, mm -hmm. we haven't done anything with the 2nd and the 11th yet. And uh, there's little Roman numerals on them, and they see... They see Gilliman's pod, and they're like, they, they're just like every one of them just almost reaches for their weapon, like, 
now's the time we kill this mother. Right? You just you just know they want to do this guy in. Yep. Uh, but more importantly, each one of these pods is hooked into a bigger machine, but it has a little generator on it, and it turns out it's a Geller field generator. Now, Doug, why do you have Geller fields? Well, uh, Dan, you have Geller fields to keep the warp out. Oh, well, but wait a minute. If the Emperor didn't know about the warp, then why would he have Geller fields on his little, his little birthing pods? That makes no sense. You know, it's almost like it's a gigantic lie. <laughs> oh my gosh, man. It, oh, so revealing. So the Emperor not only knows of, but it turns out he's dealt with the gods in order to get the knowledge he needs to make the Primarchs. Yeah. And when they come for payment, <laughs> here's the thing. So Argo Tall, so they come for payment. They're like, we're going to get get these guys but they can't because there's geller fields well argo tall even though this is like a vision it's hard to understand i think as you're listening or reading that there's a way they they can interact with this vision and he takes out his two you know red red iron swords and he disables the geller field so as soon as that happens all these embryonic cells just boom all of a sudden they're launched out and into the universe and it's really interesting how aaron writes about the arrival of each one of these cells which we know is a primarch on each one of the planets where they were found like you know one of them talks about this thing arrived in a forest and you kind of think that might be lionel johnson and there's another right. one where you know that it's probably curs and but it's just mm -hmm. so cool because he'll go and and then he'll describe another one. And, and he goes, it's really a cool, cool tour of uh, what's happening with these Primarchs. But the bottom line is they know that everything the Emperor has told in the Imperium itself is built on a lie. Now, question for you. Yes. Do you think that that sequence of events actually happened? Yes, I believe it did. Okay, I, I am. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. No, I was just gonna say I'm actually not so sure because they don't have to like the the forces of chaos don't have to actually have proof. They just have to make the word bearers believe the story. And in this story about gods and deals gone wrong, the emperor is painted very poorly. The chaos gods painted very honorably, right? We made a deal. Of course, you got to honor it. Sure. And then the word bearers are put multiple times as the hero of the story, which for people who have a deep faith and believe that they are the zealots who carry the word is very appealing and very uh, enticing. Oh, absolutely. And so it's like, man, they are the martyrs and the heroes of the story. And, you know, maybe it, it didn't need to literally be Argyll Tall smashing the Geller fields. It could have been. I mean, obviously something happened to them. I'm just as happy right. to believe right. it is. Right. But having the word bearers feel like they are taking control and doing yes. what's right is more important. And that was an act of, I, I don't know, rebellion. And even if it was just division, it's in well, them. I, I, there's two reasons, I believe. One being that I cheated and I read the book Valdor. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. So that's one reason I believe it. The second reason I believe it is that Ingefell warns them many times. 
because he's there, you know, he's, he's providing the vision. Right. Do not interact with this. Do not let them know you're here. Do not, do not, do not. He warned them like a bazillion times, don't interact. So they had a choice That's to true. interact with this. So if they had chosen not to, you know, to your point, he, you know, he probably knew they were going to interact, but they could have chosen not to. And then the vision would have been just what the vision was. You know, so that's why I guess I believe more that it happened, not that, you yeah. know, it didn't. So, uh, so that scene happens in the lab. The Primarchs are launched, and we're taken back to Orpheus of Lament then, and now they're in the eye. They've gotten there. Mm-hmm. And Ingefell now asks Argol Tall to take a leap of faith and drop the Geller fields for the ship. Well, he knows what's going to happen. I mean, yep. yes. he knows what's going to happen. Yeah, uh, yeah. He just dropped a Gellerfield on like 20 Primark babies and is yeah. just like, yes, you're going to be taken to a whimsical fun adventure in the forest. Is that really what yes. you think is going to happen right now? <laughs> and in the end, you know, he drops the Gellerfields because he's he's got to find the answers for Lorgar. And literally all thousand of the crew are just slaughtered. And Ingefell kills the word bearers one at a time. Which takes us back to the beginning of the chapter, which is that scene where Ingefell kills Argotal. They all wake up. That's kind of where we're back to now. Yep. Um, so Argotal has been telling Lorgar all these things. And one of the things that Lorgar says is we're going to commit genocide on Cadia because we can't, you know, have these people or any evidence of what we've done here. I mean, of course what we've done is absolutely, you know, traitorous. That is traitorous. They, they, he crossed the line there. Uh, and the other thing that they talk about is Argotal's possession, because part of what we find is all of the space Marines who survived have, have a new friend. Um, yep. Let's put it that way. Yep. Uh, and, then when they're finished talking, he goes to Cyrene, of course, to confess. Um, and he interestingly says he'll defend humanity, but he's not going to defend the Imperium anymore because it's based on lies. Yes. Um, and this is where uh, he speaks of the heresy to her, bringing the other legions into the revelations of the primordial truth. And she's listening to all this, you know, and she she's just great she just listens she doesn't react which is really kind of cool i think um i think uh two things here so so that happens um, mm-hmm. the other thing i think there's two other items in this part of the book that are of note first of all um Argotal and aqualon you know they've been together for like 40 years or 80 years now i guess by this time right um and they become friends as much friends as they could be uh and so they spar a lot, you know, and practice, do the practice cage thing. And so Argotal and Aquilon are sparring, which is really interesting because for the first time ever, Argotal actually beats Aquilon. Yes. <laughs> like, whoa, what's going on? Why is this happening, right? Uh, we kind of know, but uh, – and 
the other thing is Aqualon asks uh, Argoltal about Vendata's death, and of course Argoltal creates this amazing story of Vendata's heroism and the heroism of the other Marines who died, and um, you know all that he did to you know uh, save or Vendata and all those kind of things. So uh, interesting conversation, and I think it's an important one because. Aqualon believes his friend, but it's the only, I think it's about the only, I think he says something about to the other custodians that Argotal is the only word bearer that he believes. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. so he kind of, you know, kind of took the pressure off, I think from that perspective, Argotal did. The second thing, which is really interesting is Argotal is promoted to chapter master by Lower Geyer. And what's a small thing, but I think very important is when they come to the ceremony, he and Zaphon, for the very first time, are dressed in crimson and black armor. Yes. Yep. And this is the turn. Yep. They are not in gray anymore. And that's really important. A very important little thing that he writes into the story. Um, and the survivors of the Orpheus Lament, which is about 40 of them now, they're formed into... A unit known as the Gal Vorback, and I think in Colchisian that was something like Blessed Sons or Blessed Sons. I believe like so, that. yeah. Yeah, but they're called the Gal Vorback. Uh, and Lorgar has made it very clear that their possessed nature is to remain secret mm -hmm. until the right time. So that is that part of the story. Any other thoughts or or comments? No, I mean. Um... This is the introduction of one of the nastiest units in the 40k game or 30k game. Uh, the Galvar Bach are living tanks because nothing like them exists for quite a while. Um, yes. And they're so cool. They're so stinking cool. Oh, yeah. And that's all. That's all. That's my note. Okay. No, that, that's <laughs> cool. Great. Things are cool. <laughs> and uh, now we're going to jump again 40 years. Yep. Uh, after the events in the Eye of Terror. Uh, and Zaphon's been away from the fleet for a few years, mm -hmm. and what he's been doing is cultivating, we talked about these in the other books, the Warrior Lodges. And yes. he is a chaplain. He's gone to the Iron Warriors specifically, and he tells Argotal of the progress they've made. Like, there's hundreds and hundreds now of these uh, lodges throughout the other chapters, you know, like the Iron Warriors and the other ones that are going to turn uh, and just really, really happy with the progress they've made. Um, so that was an interesting conversation because it's part of the whole, you know, how the heresy spread. Uh, it was these word bearer chaplains, and there were many, many chaplains. Zaphon is the only one who went to these other legions during this 40 years and started planting these lodges and the, the heresy that was was kind of gestating inside of them. Um, mm -hmm. But to hear it from one of the chaplains, kind of how the mechanics of it was working was, I thought, kind of interesting. So yeah. the other thing that happens, and it's just kind of a brief diversion here, the Serrated Sun chapter, and they're really big. They've been remanned, as it were. Yep. They make war on a non-compliant human world, and Argotal and Aquilon fight side by side, which you really haven't seen much before. Uh, because, you know, and after so many years of sparring together, they're really, really good uh, working together. You know there's a grudging respect, and you see that. You know that he, again, considers Aquilon a friend, but you see that in this part of the story, which is really interesting. Um, and as the battle ends, though, 
the news reaches the fleet that Horus is now leading a rebellion against the Emperor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all heads turn, all attention turns to that specific thing that's going on. Absolutely. Um, One minor character, because we need, you know, it's not in the notes per se, but I think we need to talk about it, which is interesting, is we're uh, introduced to a imagist. Uh, I think his name is Kadim. And something that we're introduced to him in this part of the book with this compliance, he goes down to the planet and so forth. It's kind of a minor thing, but something happens on one of the ships that he discovers something and takes a picture of it. And it's really important (laughs) because one of the things that Zafen has told Argel Tal is you need to uh, work with, uh, the rituals I'm going to teach you because Aquilon and the custodians can't be communicating with Terra. And I have a mm-hmm. way for you to stop that from happening. Yes. And yes. this way to, it, it's kind of in the background, but it's really important when you think about it, because if the custodians had been able to report on everything that was going on, the emperor would have known about this long before he did. Um, but there's something happening on one of the ships that uh, we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, but very, very interesting. And I, I have some commentary on it. So anyway, yeah. Uh, so we're done with that planet and that's done. Uh, the word bearers then gather on Isfahan five. We're on Isfahan five. Now this is after yes. Isfahan three, which we've talked about. And uh, we've got the iron warriors, the night Lords and the alpha legion who have joined the word bearers. So we got four, legions that are going to turn traitor and they all meet aboard the fidelitas lex which is a you know word bearer ship and the primarchs kind of brief their captains on what's going on on the surface you know you get the iron hands the salamanders and the raven guard you've got horus's rebel legions and of course the three legions on the ground are like we're getting four legions of reinforcements we're going to just kick these guys butts and i thought it was really uh, telling again, there's these little things that Aaron uh, Doug brings into the story, mm-hmm. just like the quote from Lorgar to the custodians and Sevatar, who most people know as the first captain of the Night Lords. Yeah, he utters some words, kind of like uh, you know Argotal and Zaphon coming in for the first time in the Crimson and Black. We, at least for the first time that we know, Sevatar is the first person to ever say the words "death to the false emperor." all these other captains and officers and all these other space Marines, like hundreds of them are shouting death to the false emperor. You just picture what that's like. Yeah. You know? um, and Argotals, he has a demon. He's been possessed. We know this. And the symbiotic demon has a name. It's called Rom. Yeah. And so he like starts that name. talking to him. He actually starts having conversations with himself. Right. Um, and Rom is explaining how this is supposed to work. Because, you know, it's a new thing for Algotal. He's never been possessed before. He doesn't know mm-hmm. what, to, what to do. Uh, and so at this point, they're about to obviously go down to the surface. The four second wave legions, which just talked about touchdown in Isfahan 4, they fortify the drop site. And there's some really interesting descriptions of how the Iron Hands are fortifying their part of the battle line. It just... It is so cool to just read that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is so Iron Hands, just steel walls, 
you know, emplacements, this, that. It just goes down perfectly and really quickly. Um, so I thought that was really cool. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And, of course, Argotal and the Galvorback are at the forefront of the word bearers, uh, part of the lines. And they're met by some retreating Raven Guard. And this part of the story is just, <laughs> I don't care which side you're on. This is just so sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you know, our, and here again, he's still, even though he's possessed by a demon, he hasn't lost his humanity. He's thinking about his family. He's thinking his human family, you know, long dead. He's thinking yep. about the changes he's undergone. He's thinking about the day he was recruited by Erebus. And, you know, he he actually asks his family for forgiveness and then gives the order to open fire on these Raven guard. Mm-hmm. And, oh, my gosh, just hell is unleashed, is it not? Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, we should definitely do a video about the the drop site massacre and how that all played out. Yes. It, it, it gives a little context to this, but essentially, like, three legions got there early, went to go heretic hunting after Istvan three, and then when they came back for resupply is when the other four legions, who were, at this point, supposed to be loyalists, turned, and that's how we have our full complement of Chaos Marines who under Horus... And then, and and so there is this moment of like, it's it's a two part betrayal, right? These mm. beleaguered Space Marines, in this case, Raven Guard, turning around, realizing that like the line that they thought was going to be like, oh, we can rest here, all of a sudden it's just lined up with Galvor Bach, who are like starting to act weird and they don't look right and something's <laughs> wrong. Um, yep. If you see the model, you know what I'm talking about. They weren't quite there yet, but it was it was still hideable. You can still hide yes. it. Yep. And then the second those guns go up, it gets real gross. <laughs> it gets real nasty. That's when they that's when the demons take over. Yep. Um, and they just butcher the loyalists. I mean, uh, we see some there's some interesting scenes here. Uh, first of all, you get uh, Korax, who's the Raven Guard Primarch. He actually attacks the Galvorback. Mm-hmm. And he kills like half of them. <laughs> He's yep. just Corax is amazing. There's just no way you're gonna. He's got to be one of the most fightiest uh, Primarchs, but just slaughters him. And so he's seeing his sons die, and Lorgar confronts him. Uh, well, that isn't going well for Lorgar. Uh, no, because... <laughs> no. Turns out if you're an emotional um, religious history nerd, you don't do so well against the assassin. <laughs> Even with your big fancy mace. So Korax almost kills him and then Curse all of a sudden shows up. He's like, hello, Korax, it's me. And Korax is like, what? And (laughs) then Korax kind of retreats. He falls back because he wants to – he's fighting to preserve his own legion. What's left of it? And, you know, protect his sons. Um and the other thing, you know, Korax kind of retreats. But the other thing we see, and some of the Primarchs are watching this and like commentary. It's a sports thing. Fulgrim and Ferris Manus, you know, who's the head of the Iron Hands, mm-hmm. uh, the other uh, Loyal Legion, are fighting. And <laughs> it's just, it's almost as bad as the Korax Lorgar thing, except that Ferris Manus is just way 
outclassed here. It, yes. It's not that he doesn't have the power, but he just tires because Fulgrim is just this unbelievably, you could just picture these swords just kind of weaving through the air. Um, and he literally decapitates Ferris Manus. And we see this and then some of the other Primarchs are like, Oh, wow. Look at that. You know, like that was kind of yep. cool. It was just, it was, horrific. <laughs> uh, but so Fulgrim, you know, so Fulgrim. Yes, very much so. Anyway, anyway uh, back to our story. Daggertal, who is uh, a character we've heard a lot through the story, he's killed. Uh, and literally there's just 11 survivors in the Galvorback. Almost two-thirds of them have been killed mm-hmm. uh, in, in this battle. More than that, like three-quarters when you think about it. 11 out of 38. Um, yeah. And so all this is going on on the surface. A wonderful you know, writing by Aaron to describe this horrific battle. Uh, and while that's happening, Aquilon and his three companions who are part of the fleet have been kind of, they've been kind of dispersed to, in order to keep them out of the way. And the captains of the ships they were on had orders to deliberately delay their return, but they get back. And when they board the De Profundis, they see, evidence of the word bearer's treachery now why don't you talk about the evidence that they see in this room <laughs> oh the evidence like we've got like ritual stuff there's like oh, that thing that room full of uh the astropaths who are like glued to the wall and yes yeah it's essentially like it, it seems like uh rituals and like communication in with the demons in 40k is like so intense like it's just a way where to do it. So they had like astropaths nailed to the wall. It's, it reminded me of like, um, I don't know, Pirates of the Caribbean when the people like merge with the ship. Like they get jammed yeah. inside of it and they're just yeah. screaming. And it's meant to basically, this is part of that thing that shuts off communication. And yeah. it's just, yeah, it's a mess. And you know, the my commentary on this is that when you read this, you're just appalled. It's, this is just hideous that they're using these astropaths, basically allowing demons to possess them to block communications, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's maybe, what, 50 or 60 of them in this room. Yep. And people who read this are going to go, well, that's just horrific, sacrificing these, you know, psychers. And there's 50 or 60 of them. And then I think, okay, I, I'm not bothered by this at all because no. the emperor literally has 1,000 psychers sacrificed in a single day. Yeah, this is fine. <laughs> this, this is not a problem. Like, okay, I get it. I understand why they did it. Yeah. And why are you bothered by that? You know, if you're an imperial person, you, know, you would be so, uh, I don't know what the word is, just so upset at it, so angry at it. And it's like, really? This mm-hmm. bothers you? Um, you have to learn to kind of judge degrees of bad you know somehow it just it was just (laughs) made me laugh almost when they got so offended by it Um, (laughs) i would agree with that yeah and what's interesting though is they seem to have done like an exceptional job of hiding it like containing or compartmentalizing yes yes and and that's great i mean because they got pretty far before the custodes attached to them figured anything out Mm-hmm. I mean, they got to the the act of heresy, yeah. <laughs> and this this was shown to them because this imagist—that's why he's in the story, really. 
he had stumbled upon during an attack on the ship. He'd stumbled upon this compartment and took a picture. And somehow this word got back to the word bearers. And <laughs> Aqualon saw this and they were like, okay. They, they're they just wrathful now. They know that the word bearers had just completely gone off the rails. Yep. And the first person that Aqualon, of course, knows about Cyrene, he's like, well, she knows everything. She's been their confessor for a bazillion years. And mm-hmm. actually, when you think about it, Cyrene's probably about 100 years old by now. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah. Um, so they head straight for her. And what was really cool, though, was when they opened the door and force it open, Incarnadine, that huge Castellan robot, is just standing Yes. There. And it was like, yeah, buddy, go, tear these guys up. Well, he, he killed one of them. But yeah, uh, custodes are like super good. I mean, this is not like a uh, a dishonorable fight at all. He he put no. some work in. <laughs> he did, and actually killing a custodes, it's like that's pretty good work, buddy. But he gets destroyed by them. Aqualon murders Cyrene. Yes, she's almost dead. Um, and then they rush off. Well, Argotal goes straight to her when he comes back to the ship, and this is just. It is like a Greek tragic scene. You see this young woman who was in his arms like 100 years before, 80 years before, almost dead. And now all of a sudden she's almost dead in his arms again. Mm-hmm. And you can just see the humanity leech out of him as he just mourns for the loss of this young woman who was so important to who he was as a person, really. Uh, and it was just so sad. It was almost a maudlin moment when you read this and you realize how close the two of them were. Yep. Uh, needless to say, he was absolutely enraged. Oh, yeah. What happened here. This is like the Space Marine version of John Wick's puppy getting shot. Like this. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> that is perfect. Yeah. And so. The custodians, you know, they got to get away because they got to tell people what happened and all this stuff. So they they jump a Thunderhawk, try to take it to the planet. They get shot at and it crash lands on the planet. And the Galvor back, uh, including Argotal, obviously, are going down to hunt them down because they're dead. They're mm-hmm. just dead. And they're not going to let them live no matter if they all die. Yes. Uh, so there's only, f- what, three left now, I guess. Yeah, because they had four and there's three on the surface. Mm-hmm. And the two groups engage. And the interesting thing was, um, I think we should talk about the fighting style piece of this, which is really interesting. So Please. on Planet 4716, I think it was Zaphon or Torgal had mentioned to Argyll Tal that there's something wrong with the way these custodians fight. I mean, they were incredibly destructive. But he noticed that they like work individually. Yes. They don't work as a group. They're really, really powerful um, as individual warriors, and you you have to look at it. So the Galvorback was exactly the opposite because they attack and fight as a pack. Yes. And so they used that advantage when they killed these three custodians. So one of the custodians basically cuts Malnor to pieces. He's gone. Um, but he's killed by Torgal, which is cool. And then <laughs> literally Argyll Tall tears off Aqualon's head which I thought was so yep. great man he just yep. like 
It's gone, man. Prize him open like a can of tuna. And then, <laughs> sadly, because Zaphon was one of my favorite characters, just he just he was a he was a great great guy. Um, the last custodian throws his guardian spear like you know like a wep- like a ranged weapon, mm-hmm. and it just impales Zaphon, and he's killed. And then the remaining Galvorback just jump on him and tear him to pieces. So they're all dead. Uh, and the story is almost over now because we we finish up. We see Argel Tall in his meditation chamber. Uh, he's not only mourning the loss of Cyrene, of course, but he – and this is where that, that human part of him has come back now. Yeah. And he's really mourning the loss of Aqualon and Zaphon. Yep. He really misses both of them a great deal. And uh, the funny thing is that Rom, his demon, kind of tries to comfort him. And he says, hey, I'm your brother now, man. I know you lost, guys. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about Cyrene, bros before hoes. I got you. I'm in your head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, and then... The the word we get here is that they're on their way as the word bearers to undertake the retribution against the ultramarines at a planet called Kalth. Yes, so, which is my favorite story. Oh, amazing. Uh, so, thoughts overall? Yeah, okay. So, that concludes The First Heretic by Eric Nemsky-Bowden. Uh, I think an incredible book. One thing that I would suggest if someone is going to read it, because I, I do suggest you read it for yourself. Um, yes. The reason is, instead of other books with a ton of characters where you have to keep track of various storylines, I feel like this one has a lot of characters, but everything that's said to every one of them is meant for us as the reader, like mm. to form a picture of what their belief system is like, what their faults are collectively. Um, they get so intensely attached to information and, you know, just as Lorgar has these grandiose acts of faith and belief, he projects that onto his sons and all of a sudden Argotal is taking a leap of faith by smashing the Geller field. And mm-hmm. like, yeah. it's, it's just that constant sins of the father repeating itself kind of a thing. And so they get all in. Very, very quickly, relatively speaking. I mean, compared to the scope of 40K timelines, 80 years is nothing. Um, and, yeah, I just I thought it was a wonderful depiction of, I mean, frankly, like, the problems with humanity with post-human warriors, right? Like, <laughs> even though the Ultramarines were painted as being very unsympathetic and, and very cold, that is overall healthier i would probably Mm -hmm. say for something that's like a living demigod of a weapon sure um yeah i don't know i just i thought it was a wonderful book i i love lorgar i know everybody the meme is like you know screw erebus and it's like man they all had a part to play in in bringing a tragedy and like and the overall tragedy of the heresy is made up of these individual ones their faith got shattered and their people were killed and Cyrene was taken away. And you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. all these yes. micro tragedies built into one. And it was just like, Oh snap. <laughs> sure. All I, because the emperor is a bad dad. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> he's, just, he's just an idiot. I, I've said that like 10 times already, but it's true. It's just, he's a tyrant and he's an idiot. And there's just more and more as you read more and more of the books and the stories, 
evidence that this guy just cares about nothing or no one. Um, you know, it's just his ambition. And um, as, as much as on the imperial side, we portray him as a loving father kind of a thing. Uh, it's just really, really uh, neat to, to see this different perspective. The other thing I wanted to say, you made a really good point about that humanity and how we saw you know, space Marines, even like the ultramarines being portrayed the way they were. I think it's funny how in 40 K we've come around to the Primaris Marines now and the way the Primaris are portrayed is much more human than space Marines have ever been portrayed. I mean, we do some of the stories with them in them. They'll stop. They see a little girl in this destroyed city sitting on the side of the road crying. One of the primaries picked her up and carried her. And you're going, what? I know. When, when do space Marines do that? But, you know, and you hear about primaris Marines reading poetry and doing all these things. You're going, wow, this is really a weird world where we've changed it over like that. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's just such an excellent book for so many reasons. And I think for me, if I had to rate my top three books in the heresy, this would be among the top three. I've listened or read that book. I can't tell you how many times now. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I would agree. It's it's in my top three. It's probably the least straight up actiony, but all of the scenes mm-hmm. that have action, like they they're huge. You know, I mean, like the the thousand it's, people on the ship dying and the Geller field going down. Like that's mm-hmm. it's a combat that means something. Sure. Um, and all the discussions and stuff give us such great insight into the minds of, of space brains, which is awesome. Yes. Agreed. So awesome. Well, that is our take of the first heretic. What do you want to do next, Dan? I'm just going to put you on the spot here. What do we think? Um, we can either, I uh, think okay. that Kalth might be the way to go. No, no fear. I think that might be, I think that's it. No, no fear. Yes. I, uh, think. I think there's two stories, but let's see. No, no, no fear is definitely one side of it for sure. Yeah, I think that's the the invasion of Kalth, isn't it? Yes, it should. Okay, be. so I, I think that'd be a great follow up because it would give a totally opposite view of the word bearers and the ultramarines. You know, it would give a very interesting contrast. Okay, yeah, let's do it. No, no fear sense? by Dan Abnett is the next one. Okay, awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with us, everybody, and taking this journey with us. You heard the next book. If you have any questions for us, I know this summer has been kind of crazy and haven't had much of a chance to check the questions. We haven't we haven't really had anything, but uh, let me know in the comments down below or wherever you send emails. I have all the stuff in our description about how to hang out with me and Dan on our respective shows. He has Cubic Shenanigans. I'm over here with 2 Plus Tough. And uh, we just look forward to hanging out with you and seeing you next time. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll catch you next time. Happy Wargaming and the Emperor protects.